0: This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And what would, what you, that you, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) And that you did reign, So that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, as my beloved children, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in the church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not to talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the, God's word this morning. Thank you. You may be seated. All
1: right, good morning, Wingfoot Church. Thanks for reading that, Linda. Uh, people have been tripping over Paul's words for 2,000 years, so you're in a, in a good in a good community. Uh, well, good morning. My name is John. I'm the pastor here at Wingfoot, and it's good to have you with us this morning. Wherever you're coming from, you're welcome, and you're wanted uh, in this space. I want to invite you, if you haven't yet already, to open up your Bible, whether you've got a book, whether you got it on an app on your phone, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because we're going to be looking at what Linda just read. If you don't have a Bible, Uh, We do have Bibles available for free in the back, uh, and so you can pick those up. That's a gift uh, to you. We, as a church, uh, always seek to submit to the authority of this word and what God is saying to it, and that's why we open it up, that's why we read it, that's why oftentimes we stand when we're reading it, uh, just as a symbol and kind of an expression of our openness to what God wants to say this morning. Um, As uh, we are walking through this series, I mentioned this last week, I just want to put this in front of you as well. Uh, The series Untangling Jesus through 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of different things. Uh, A lot of things that, especially as we move further into the book, you might have uh, some specific questions, some personal questions about. Uh, And so we want to offer an opportunity, we're going to put a number on the screen, and this is at the bottom of the screen as we go through the slides. Uh, If you have a question related to anything that comes up through this series, uh, or anything that comes up in 1 Corinthians, there's a lot here. We could probably spend three years in this book uh, and so, uh, feel free, you can text your questions to that number uh, and, uh, and we will get those. And then periodically through the series, we'll take some time and we will seek to answer those questions uh, as best we can as part of the series. Uh, so you can text any question, that, this number is live all the time. Uh, if your number is in our system, just be aware, it's not anonymous, if you have like a question you want to submit anonymously, don't do it this way, uh, you can submit anonymous questions in the giving box in the back, just write it in a piece of paper and we'll get that, and then over the course of the series, we're going to take a couple moments and kind of step back and answer some questions that come up through the series. We've got a couple this week, some really good ones uh, that I'm going to have to study up on. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, so thanks for doing that. Um, so as we're in 1 Corinthians 4, i got to start off uh, by admitting, uh, confessing a sin that I recently committed. Uh, I am a member of the Aldi cult, uh, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, Aldi is a grocery store, right? I should probably clarify what I mean by that. If you don't know what Aldi means, that's a weird, that's a weird thing to hear a pastor say. Aldi, uh, if you shop at Aldi, you know that it, it is like a community, right? Like, you either love or you hate Aldi, okay? And, and when you go to Aldi, uh, I love it because it's efficient, it's easy. I don't have to choose eight varieties of cereal. There's two, and I get to pick whether I want Cheerios or Honey Nut Cheerios, right? That's it, and it's not even Cheerios. It's like oats, whatever that means. Um, so, uh, so going there, though, if you are an avid uh, member of this community, uh, you know that there's some things that you just always expect. Like if they move your box to another aisle, it's really disturbing, right? You're like, where'd my cereal go? That's my cereal. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, I, I was making a quick run to Aldi. Uh, and as I pull into the parking lot, uh, I'm looking for my Aldi quarter. Now, if you belong to the Aldi community, you know the most sacred object in the community is the quarter. Because the quarter is what allows you to get the cart. And then you take that cart and you drive it through. And then there's, there's this magical moment that sometimes happens when you're leaving Aldi. And, uh, and someone says, hey, can I, can I take your cart? And they'll hand you a quarter. And you get to say, I don't need your quarter. You just give them the cart out of your sheer generosity. Like 25 cents is nothing to me. So the quarter is really important. It's really sacred in the community of Aldi. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I pull into the parking lot. And I look in the cup holder. Uh, and there's no quarter. So I check my Aldi quarter pocket, which is this pocket on your jeans. Uh, That is why you have that pocket. It's for your Aldi quarter. Uh, And there's no quarter there. I usually have a quarter there. So now I have an issue. Uh, And so I scrounge around in uh, my dash, and I find two dimes and a nickel, which equals 25 cents. And so now I go up to someone, and there's a lady who's returning her cart, and I say, hey, can I I trade you? Which in Aldi language means I'm going to give you my quarter, and you give me your cart. And so she holds out her hand and I put two dimes and a nickel in her palm and she gives me the most offended face that I have ever seen anyone give. Because I had violated the core tenet, the core social rule of the Aldi community is you never break the quarter. Now for me, it, like it's 25 cents. I mean, what difference does it make? But that, that was a sacred social thing. And, that, and so I, I spend the whole time shopping. Uh, I'm just like, man, what did I do? What did I do? And I, I asked some people, and everyone said, oof, you should not have done that. Now, there was, there's no sign outside of Aldi that says, hey, don't break the quarter. No one ever taught me that. There was not an orientation class to Aldi to say, hey, here's the social rules of the community of Aldi. But you learn it. You learn it over your time in that community, over your participation in that community. And the reality is that there are those unspoken social rules about this community that shape how this community interacts and what we expect from this community. And so when you're new to that or you violate that, you feel it really quickly. And that is true whether we're talking about Aldi or whether we're talking about the church. Like we come into this room, and there's a certain set of unspoken social rules. We don't have a sign on the door that says, "Hey, here's how you should act." Right? Everyone is very quiet right now. Like that is an unspoken social expectation that, like, when the pastor is talking, you don't talk back. But if you want to say "Amen," please say say "Amen." Like those things are okay. But like we have this expectation that, like, this is what we should do. There's a certain number of chairs that you should leave between you and person someone who's not from your family, and based on the room, it looks like about two. Right. No one has to put this on a sign or teach you how this is. It's something that we just kind of learn by being part of the community. But the problem is, when you start spending time with people who aren't part of that community, or people who belong to a different community start coming into that community, all of a sudden you start to realize, oh, these things that I thought were understood are maybe not as understood. Are these things that I thought we all agreed on, we maybe don't all agree on? I mean, if you're here uh, in our church for the first time, or one of the the few first times, uh, this is probably one of the things you feel like, what am I supposed to do in this space? People are all standing. Do I stand? People are all getting coffee. Do I get coffee? What do I do with my kids? What if my kids don't know how how to act in the social space? You see, there's all these kinds of unwritten social rules or expectations that when you're new to a community, it can be very anxiety-creating. And the reality of this is that you can come into a space, a community that says they're welcoming and says they're belonging and says that they love you and they care for you, but your experience of that community actually communicates that I don't belong here. Because the expectations that people have and the way that people interact with one another, there's this kind of shared sense of what social cues we follow. And so I don't share those, and so it feels like I don't belong here. And so we never have to put a sign that says, this church is for these kinds of people. But this is what creates communities of people who are very similar to each other, that struggle with diversity, or that struggle with different groups of people. And this is what Paul is going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 4. In 1 Corinthians 4, he's going to, he's going to talk about the social world of the church, and what it is that we think of the church, what it is that we think of success in the church, what do we, what do we think we should do when we get together. He's going he's gonna to try to pinpoint this unspoken social reality, right? Because it's kind of like talking about the air. Like, we know it's there, but you don't feel it until it's moving. And so he's going to diagnose uh, some of the issues and how the church had been arranging itself socially. And he's going to particularly focus on one group of people, because they had unexamined assumptions about what should be in the church. They had unexamined assumptions about the social status quo of how things should be. And so they were acting in one way outside the community of Jesus. And when they came into the community, they thought everything should be the same. And they should be treated in a particular kind of way. And so we're going to look at, through chapter 4, uh, three things that Paul is going to redefine. The first thing he's going to redefine is he's going to redefine normal. He's going to redefine normal. Second, then he's going to redefine success. And then third, he's going to redefine community. So he's going to redefine normal. He's going to redefine success. He's going to redefine community. So first, Paul's going to redefine normal. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is require, required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, let's stop there for a second, because Paul is saying this. Remember, uh, a couple of chapters, if you were with us uh, a couple chapters ago, Paul said he came and he was not a very impressive person. He was not a very impressive speaker. He's was, he was probably a little shorter than everybody. He's kind of a little, looked a little funny. Uh, and so they judged him. They said, I don't know that we really want to follow Paul. But, but notice what Paul says, your judgment doesn't stick to me. I don't care that you judge me. I'm not, I'm not burdened by that. Uh, and, and if you think about it, like what he says there, like I can't be judged by anybody. That actually sounds very much like kind of the larger culture that we live in. He says, no one can judge me. And in fact, Miley Cyrus has sung, only God can judge me. Taylor Swift said, haters are going to hate, so shake it off. Right? It's kind of the, the mantra of our larger world, the larger culture that we live in. It says, No one can judge me. And so Paul almost sounds like he's getting with that, that idea of what is normal? Whatever I want normal to be. What should I do? Whatever I want to do. No one can judge me. It's up to me to decide. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 4 I am not aware of anything against myself. He says, I've got a clear conscience. I don't think I've done anything wrong. I haven't done any harm. I haven't hurt anybody along the way. But that's not enough for him. He says this, I am not thereby acquitted. Or In other words, just because no one judges me and just because I don't judge myself and I don't think I've done anything wrong doesn't mean I'm therefore faultless. Instead, he says this, it is the Lord who judges me. You see, Paul redefines normal really re-centers normal around God and say, okay, where do we begin in our thinking about what should be and how we judge what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad? It doesn't begin with kind of this mantra of do no harm or no one can judge me or whatever works for you is great as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. He says, no, that doesn't go far enough because the reality is this, that, that you might think you're in the clear But there are some things about you that you don't even understand. Maybe some motives beneath your heart, beneath your actions or your attitudes that you don't understand. And so he says to just say, hey, I have a clear conscience about this is not enough. He says this, the Lord is the beginning of our our assessment of what is quote-unquote normal. So he says this, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, he's saying this. When when it comes to judging other people or or kind of making assessments about what is good or what is right or what is normal, our culture would say, hey, whatever works for you as long as it doesn't get in other people's business. But Paul says, no, that's not good enough because you have some hidden things in your heart and your judgment of what is good or right or normal that aren't, aren't clear, and you don't even know that. And so where do we begin? We begin with the Lord, because the Lord can see these things. He will disclose these things. He, can, he, has, he has a clear vision of these things. And so this idea of what is normal or where do we start to build kind of the sense of who we should be and what we should care about begins with God and who he is and what he has done. You see, every person and really every culture has to answer a certain set of questions about how do we live and what is good and what is Right. All right, four questions, we'll put them up on the screen. Uh, I want you to think about your thinking this morning. We're going to challenge you in your thinking about your thinking this morning. The first question is, what is real? And every person has to answer this question. Every culture has to answer this question. What is real? In other words, what is reality? Am I living in a simulation? Is this all part of the matrix? Or, or is the world in front of me actually real? Can I actually experience reality? Is it actually as I perceive it to be? The second question then built on this of, of what is real then is truth. How do I know? How do I make sense of the world? How do I make sense of that reality? What, what metrics do I use to help me judge the reality that's in front of me? The third question then is humans. What, who are we? In light of the reality that I can discern through truth, who are we? What does it mean to be human? And then from this question, then we say, okay, if that's what it means to be human in light of the reality of the world, then the question is, what is good? What is moral? Or what should happen? See, every person, every culture, really every, every worldview has to answer some of these questions. You know, we've used this kind of this metaphor, this picture of an operating system. Right, that, uh, that following Jesus is not like downloading an app onto your phone, it's like embracing a new way of approaching the world, a new way of interacting with the world. And Paul has used this throughout this book of 1 Corinthians to say you need to think deeper about who Jesus is. And these are really kind of uh, uh, like if you were to think about the hardware of the operating system. Right? If you're in IT, I'm sorry, I'm probably like botching a metaphor here, but the hardware right, is like the, the stuff of, of the phone or the stuff of the device that shapes the operating system, that shapes how you move through that. And these questions, everyone has to answer. And they're built on each other. Now, see, in the Corinthian world that Paul lived in, they had a certain set of answers to these questions. Uh, The first question of reality is that reality is kind of fundamentally unknowable. That there are lots of gods and and lots of ways of living. And so reality is kind of, uh, you can't ever get to the bottom of it. And so there's really, because of that, there's no absolute truth, and everything is relative. Because after all, you follow this God over here, and so that God might be telling you something true. I follow this God over here, he's telling me something different, and so truth is fundamentally relative. And so in this world, then what does it mean to be human? It means to be an individual. I'm going to be individualistic, I'm going to decide what's good and true for me. And so then what is good is authenticity, that I express myself that I express my truth, that I express who I am, because after all, the world is relative. And so you just get as much prominence or power as you can. This is what Paul has been undermining over the course of these four chapters, is this way in which the church had become a context for individuals to gain fame and power. And he says, actually, there's something different that you need to consider, a different operating system. And so whether you knew it or not, over the past four chapters, Paul has been laying out the answer to these four questions for followers of Jesus. In chapter one, he answered the question of reality. What is reality? He said this, God. But not just any God, not just the God of my imagination, the God as revealed in the cross of Christ. And so Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's how I know God and how I experience God's work in my life. And so this question of reality is at the bottom, God. And so then the question of truth in chapter 2, we looked at He said this, uh, truth is based on the revelation that God gives us, that the Spirit shows us some things. And so truth is knowable, and it's knowable as God tells it to us. And so then in chapter 3 last week, he answered the question, what does it mean to be human? He said to be human is to belong to this Spirit-filled community. But you're not just an individual, but you belong to a family, and this family is made by Jesus through the power of His Spirit when He died and rose again for you. And so then, in chapter four, and in all the other chapters, He's going to start talking about morality: what is good, what is good. And so He's going to start leaning into this, and it's really important that we get this. I think we have this. Do we have this on the slide? The 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 four questions. There you go. Uh, the the Corinthian operating system versus the cross. Versus the way of Jesus. Right? Because if you look at that, you start to see we're heading in very different directions. Right? If, if the Corinthian world says, hey, everyone is an individual, and so whatever is good is just whatever is true or authentic to you. Versus, hey, God, as revealed in the cross of Christ, who shows me that through the truth of his scripture and the presence of his spirit, invites me into a community, then morality is fundamentally about Selflessness or doing what God asks me to do for the sake of other people. Those are two very different directions. And this is going to be really important to get, because everything that Paul is going to talk about, from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 15, is going to be about that top box, about morality, about what is good. How do we live in light of who God is? And, And most of us, in the larger world that we live in today, operate out of the Corinthian operating system. It says the highest value is individuality and authenticity. And so if we don't get this, when Paul starts talking about conflict, when he starts talking about cultural difference, when he starts talking about sexuality, we're going to be uh, bumping into a lot of expectations and assumptions that Paul has kind of laid out for us. And so what is normal? Where do we begin with normal? We begin with God as revealed in Jesus. Jesus. And from there we then say, okay, what does success look like? And this is the second thing that Paul is going to redefine. He's going to redefine success. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. See what he's saying is this: Paul and Apollos, they were two leaders in this church. And he's saying they actually didn't have a beef. They actually were not, like, fighting. He's just been using them as an example because they were the most well-known people in this church. And he says, I've applied this to to us, but the reality is that you need to get this. You need to understand this, that you have been squabbling. You have been fighting over this. And so now he's going to direct it particularly to those who have been acting in, in the wrong kind of way. And so verse 7 and 8, he says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now what is Paul saying here? He's, he's focusing on a particular group of people in this church. And this particular group of people were those who, outside of the church, in the Corinthian world, they had power and privilege. And so they had this power. So so he says this, right? Uh, He's parodying what they say in verse 8. He said, you're seeking riches. You're seeking economic wealth. Or he says, uh, you've become kings. You have this political or this social influence and this social power. And so in verse 7 he says you come into this space he says uh, he says you see difference that you come into the community and, and really that the word the language there is, is that you're discerning who belongs and who doesn't You see they had uncritically accepted the social status quo of the Corinthian world and they now came into the church and those who had power and privilege were looking in the church and saying okay where do I fit in this Where do I belong and how can I get people? Because you see, in their culture, it was a very hierarchical culture. And and so it was very hard to kind of move up in the world. But you gained power and prominence by gaining people to your crew. Like you would actually uh, pay people to do work for you and kind of build your platform. And those who are above you would pay you to work for them. And so the whole thing was about building this kind of group of people who would support your cause or your name. And the more people that you had and the more people that you were connected to, the more powerful and privileged you got. And so, everyone, all the way from the emperor all the way on down, it was very clear where you fit in the social status quo. And so, what Paul has been saying is you've been coming into the church, and the church at this point would have been primarily uh, lower class, lower income people in the Roman world. And so, you'd come into this room if you were a person of power and privilege, and you'd look around. And you'd say, there's lots of people I can recruit to my cause. Lots of people need my money. Lots of people need my influence. And so you would come in and you'd start acting like you're a king. Start acting like you are the big stuff. And so Paul is zeroing on them and saying, your power and privilege is actually getting in the way of you experiencing what Jesus wants for you. They thought that they were successful because they had power and privilege. Because what happens when you have lots of power and privilege is you start to think that your way is the best way. That how I do things is normal. And how I approach life is how other people should should do it. And so what happens then when you come into a group of people or a community of people who don't have the same amount of power and privilege as you is you start thinking, I can fix these people. I can help these people. These people need me. And before long, it becomes about you. And then what happens right, is it becomes really confusing, then what are you inviting people into? Are you inviting people into the way of Jesus? Are you inviting people into your power and your privilege? I think we have to really just pay attention to this. Right? Because in our current day, right, some of us carry more power and privilege than others. Like historically speaking in our world, the lighter your skin is, the more social power you've had. And so what does it mean then to work in a neighborhood or work with people who have a different color skin than you? When the world around you has said, the lighter your skin is, the better you are. The lighter your skin is, the easier it is for you. Or what does it look like to be in a world that says the social status quo is the middle class is best? Middle class is best. That's the goal. Every politician is trying to appeal to the middle class. And this is the best. So, what does it look like then to interact with people who don't have as much as you? The whole world around you is telling, telling you, well, you've made it. And then you interact with people who don't have as much as you. And you start thinking, ah, they need me. They need me to show them how to budget, they need me to show them how to live, how to do family. How to do all these things. And before long, it becomes very difficult to discern. Are you holding out to them Jesus, or are you holding out to them your culture? And so success looks like becoming like me, rather than becoming like Jesus. See, Paul is very concerned about this. He spent three chapters talking about this, because this group of people had uncritically accepted the social status quo of the world around them. And they come into the church and they come into the mission of Jesus and they're acting just like they do towards people who are different than them as they would if they were in the marketplace. And so Paul invites them to a different vision of success in verse 9. He says, success in the way of Jesus is not power and privilege, getting more and gaining more and being more and being more successful. Instead, he says this in verse 9 For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, the apostles, if you're new to the Bible, the apostles were those who spent time with Jesus. They actually followed Jesus for three years. They were the founders of the church, right? They had proclaimed Jesus in all these communities and started all these churches. And so, if there's anyone who is successful, there's anyone who is significant in the church? It would be these guys. This is like the, the the CEOs of the church, if you will. Like they had started it by the power of Jesus. But what does he say? He said, "Us apostles have become a spectacle to the world." Now the word "spectacle" is the same word that's often used for gladiatorial games in Rome. And in Rome, right, you know that kind of Colosseum, right? That's where the gladiators would fight. Now, uh, if you've seen Gladiator, the movie, you think being a gladiator is, like, glorious. Like, you got all this glory. But no, being a gladiator, you're at the bottom rung of society. You are lower than slaves. And so Paul has said, we have become like that, and everyone sees it. He goes on, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, so as he's writing this, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. He says this, as an apostle, right, I followed Jesus. We were with him. And so as we follow him, right, this is what success begins to look like. This is the direction of your life. Not more power and privilege, but less. Verse 13, he says this, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That word scum is like, you know that crusty, like three-day-old stuff on your dishes? That's what that word means. We're being scraped off the plate of the world. You see, Paul is is really defining success here around the cross of Jesus. Because this is what happened to Jesus. He was made weak. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was buffeted. He was reviled. He was persecuted. He was slandered. He was killed. And so if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, we need to redefine success around the cross of Jesus because that is when God accomplished his greatest power. And so what does it mean then, if you're a person of power and privilege, to follow a crucified king? Look at verse 14. Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my dear children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So he says, I'm writing this to you not to make you feel bad for your power or your privilege. I'm writing this to correct you. This word admonish is like to correct or to train into the right direction. So he's saying, I'm not telling you to feel bad about what you have. I'm just warning you that the way of Jesus is going to demand some things of you. And so he says this, right? You've had countless guides. You have lots of people telling you how you should live. You have lots of voices telling you what what it looks like to be successful. Countless numbers of them are, are every day telling you this is the good life. This is success. This is power. This is privilege. Get more, get more, get more. But he's saying, as your father in Christ, imitate me in my pain, in my suffering, in my giving up of power and privilege, just like I imitate Christ. And so Paul is saying these things not to make you feel bad or to feel ashamed, but instead to be aware that if you have power and privilege, there's going to be some more correction that you're going to have to embrace in order to get in line with the things of Jesus. Last thing, third point. Paul redefines us. He says this, verse 17, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, As I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, the Corinthians lived in a very prominent city. Right? You could have said, hey, we're, we're one of the best cities. There's lots of, lots of money, lots of power, lots of culture. Uh, and so they could have looked at the rest of the world and said, uh, we've got it figured out. But instead, Paul says this, I'm teaching you what I teach every church, to follow the ways of Christ. And so he redefines us, the church, not in terms of, okay, you're the church in Corinth or you're the church in Goodyear Heights, or you're the church in Akron, or you're the church in Ohio or the United States. He says, no, our family, our community, us, is every follower of Jesus everywhere. And by doing this, he expands their imagination and really invites us to expand our imagination of what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to belong to a community of faith? Because oftentimes we end up coming to a church with people similar to us, or at least people who live within like 30 minutes of where you live. And so the questions that you're asking and the things that you're concerned about in that 30-minute circle around that church is going to be different than the questions that people are asking 3,000 miles away or around the world. And oftentimes we get so focused on our questions and our issues and our concerns and the things that we're fighting about in our 30-minute circle that we begin to say, okay, this is the most important thing for Christians to care about right now. And instead, Paul's saying, we follow Christ everywhere in every church. And so he's inviting us to imagine a church that is not defined by a geography, or by an ethnicity, or by a nationality, but defined by belonging to Christ and following his way. And I think there's a particular challenge here because Paul is concerned with those who are arrogant. And that word arrogance, actually, uh, in kind of the contemporary use, often referred to those who are arrogant to their noble birth. That I was born to the right people, or the right place, or the right country. And we have to be really careful, I think, what Paul is warning us here is that we don't assume that because I'm a Christian in the United States of America, I have it all together. Because he says, there's lots of talk. There's lots of talk. We make so many books. There are so many books. So many Christian books that you can buy. So many Christian podcasts that you can listen to. So many Christian t-shirts that you can get. There's so much stuff that we do here and we, we ship it out around the world, but what Paul is saying is this, the true test is not how well you talk about Jesus or how much you publish about Jesus, but it's the power of God. And what is the power? He's talked about this in chapter one. To the power of God is the cross of Christ. In other words, that when you're weak, when you aren't powerful or privileged, God's power is evidently clear in your life, evidently clear in your community, because there's no other way that this could be happening apart from God's spirit and God's power. And so we have a lot to learn. If we live here, Right? Because even if you don't have a lot economically, you have a lot more than people around the world. And so the question is, like, what do we imagine the ideal Christian being like? There's a question that I, I recently read. Uh, a guy named Sun Cheng Ra, who uh, wrote a book called The Next Evangelicalism. And he, he asked that question. It's like, what is the average Christian? What does a normal Christian look like? He said this 50 years ago. Uh, we got this on the screen. 50 years ago, if you were asked to describe a typical Christian in the world you could confidently assert that person to be an upper-middle-class white male living in an affluent and comfortable Midwest suburb. If you were to ask the same question today, that answer would more likely be a young Nigerian mother on the outskirts of Lagos, a university student in Seoul, South Korea, or a teenage boy in Mexico City. European and North American Christianity continue to decline, while African, Asian, and Latin American Christianity continue to increase dramatically. In the year 1900, Europe and North America comprised 82% of the world's Christian population. In 2005, Europe and North America comprised 39% of the world's Christian population, with African, Asian, and Latin American Christians making up 60% of the world's Christian population. By 2050, African, Asian, and Latin American Christians will constitute 71% of the world's Christian population. These numbers do not account for the fact that the majority of Christians in North America here will be non-white, So global Christianity is clearly non-white. He's inviting us to imagine a global church. A church not defined by where we live and the politics of where we live, but instead by Christ and his kingdom. And Paul is laying this out to those who are in this church who think they've got it all together. He says, no, success looks like something different. Like giving yourself up like Christ gave himself up for you. And so, what does this mean for you and for me as a community this morning? I just want to offer you three thoughts in conclusion from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The first is this Examine your normal. Examine your normal. Is it a biblical mandate or a cultural preference? Examine your normal. What you think is normal. What is normal behavior for a Christian? What does a normal Christian live like? What does a normal Christian worship service look like? Examine that. Because oftentimes it's in those assumptions that we have tangled up Jesus with what our culture says. And so examining that is to say, okay, why do I think that this is how things should be? Is it because somewhere in Scripture I can say, hey, this is, what, this is what the early church did? This is what the way of Jesus calls us to? Or is it because that's just how we've always done it? And so examine your normal and make sure that in all the ways that it needs to be, it is rooted in who Jesus is. And it's not that you have to throw away your preferences, but examine your preferences to make sure that you are understanding that these are preferences and not essentials to following Jesus. And how do we do that? We don't have to do that alone. We have the scriptures we have God's Word. That's why we're exploring this series, Untangling Jesus, because this is what we're doing. Say, okay, what does it actually look like to follow the biblical mandates that Jesus has laid out for us? So examine your normal. Number two, confront paternalistic and racist attitudes in yourself and in others. Now, what is paternalism? Paternalism is a big word. All it simply means is this. Uh, you assume that because you have more, you're better, and so you help people and put them in a position of being less than you. So, so you kind of assume, you have this kind of attitude that says, I've got it all together, and so you just become like me. And you end up disempowering people and, and taking from them what they could do themselves. So paternalism says, be like me. Be like me and my culture, rather than be like Jesus. Confronting racist attitudes, right? Paul says this, you come into the space and you, you discern difference. You're sizing people up. Confronting this is being aware of this in your own heart, in your own mind. Like, How is that joke that I, I said actually rooted in, in a false way of looking at someone who's different than me? How is the way that I talk about people who are different than me actually rooted in racism? Instead of in who Jesus is and what he's done for people. So confronting that, dealing with that in your own heart, and also lovingly confronting that in other followers of Jesus. Lastly, learn from the global Christian family. Learn from the global Christian family. I was challenged a couple years ago to take a look at uh, the voices that I was listening to, uh, Christian voices I was listening to, uh, pastors, authors, podcasts, and and to figure out their background. Uh, And I found that 91% of the books and authors and podcasters that I've been listening to for like 10 years all came from similar backgrounds as me. But the statistics that we just laid out said, I'm missing out on a whole section of followers of Jesus. And I'm only reading books of people who are asking the questions that I'm asking. And so I'm going to have a very truncated view of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we live in a day and age when you can do this with relative ease. Books, YouTube, podcasts, right? Be discerning in those kinds of things, right? To to build on the foundation of Jesus... But learning from people who are different than you who also follow Jesus is going to expand your view of what it means to be successful in the kingdom of God and also help you better identify the ways that your normal is preferential and not essential. And So so begin to do that work if you haven't already is learning from the global family of Jesus because we're not alone in figuring this out. It's not up to us. We have a community of people who are following Jesus, the vast majority of them are not as successful as us by the world standards. But by the standards of Christ, God is doing incredible things. Uh, if you want to talk more about that, we touched on a lot of things. Remember, you can text in questions and we can talk about this, but I think this is one of the absolute essential things that comes with this idea of untangling Jesus. Is oftentimes untangling Jesus from what I expect him to be and to find him in Scripture again. And so let me pray for us this morning. Uh, God, as we've talked through this unexamined social reality, uh, it's kind of like talking about the air in the room. And so in these things, I know that there's probably some things that uh, we need your truth to discern, your spirit to discern. Uh, some opinions that I have or that we have or, or things that maybe are even just kind of building up this, this barrier to being heard and to being understood. Uh, so Spirit, I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to what it is and what it looks like to follow you. Uh, The you as revealed in the scriptures, the you as revealed in the cross to embrace your normal and to follow you uh, with a diverse family of followers of Jesus. We praise you that you are working in every corner of the world, bringing people to you. And God, we pray that we would more faithfully follow you as a community of Jesus here in this neighborhood. God, for the one who's here this morning and maybe feels a little bit like an outsider because of the unspoken social rules that they may feel in this space, would you give us the humility and discernment to welcome people as they are, and when they know the love and the embrace that comes through the cross of Jesus, who died for us, who became the scum of the earth, so that we could know you. May this be our vision of success. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.